Hello and welcome to this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. I'm Eloise McLennan. I am the Deep Dive magazine editor and I'm here with our editor-in-chief, Jonah Constock, who is fresh from San Francisco where he has been attending the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. Jonah, hello and welcome. Hey Eloise, thanks for uh, jumping on to chat with me. It's a Friday morning and I got in uh, Thursday night, so very fresh. And you just about made it to JP Morgan. Uh, there was a snowstorm, so thankfully we were able to get you across the country and down on the ground with all of our expert insiders and uh, hear really from the ground as to what's going to be going on in healthcare in 2024. So I think if we start quite broadly. What were the key takeaways that you you saw from from this year's event? I think I spent the first two days of the three that I was there lamenting the fact that I, I hadn't heard a lot of consensus on what the key takeaways are, but they started to um, crystallize eventually. I think the big thing is that um, the whole industry got thrown a bit of a curveball. Um, you know, a couple weeks ago when I was doing interviews for my end of the year, you know, my 2024 prediction pieces, people were saying they were kind of skeptical about what this year was going to be like from an investment and deal-making perspective. And then over the course of you know, three weeks, right around Christmas, a whole lot of, of big, big pharma, multi-billion dollar acquisitions dropped. So everyone sort of had to recalibrate and say, oh, maybe this isn't going to be, a, is going to be a good year for acquisitions. And, um, and that was the, the prevailing mood was, was this optimism, but with a little, a little asterisk of, is this just recency bias? You know, because there's a lot of factors contributing in both directions but overall the 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 sense was that because of patent cliffs because of the IRA pharma companies are looking to M&A to shore up their pipelines to you know diversify and and gird against uncertainty and they have the capital and the economy is improving so they're feeling good about spending it um so we're most people seem to be anticipating um, kind of an uptick in deals, especially late stage clinical or you know almost clinical assets that are that are largely de-risked and and can kind of slot into the pipeline without too much you know without too much work and without too much risk or uncertainty. So that was the big takeaway. A, a bit of a return to to form with the the movement towards more deals, but with a hint of caution. So we're not just going to go head first like we did in 2021 when we had that big investment bubble. Yeah, I mean the last two years have been, you know, kind of rough um in in from the a funding perspective. I mean and and in a, a deal making perspective, they've been obviously really exciting years for innovation. Um and so now it's like these big strides have been made in R&D and there's lots of biotech's doing really exciting things so you know let's let's see if we can get a piece of that and while we may not have expected quite as many big deals going into jp morgan this year one thing that we could not have underestimated would have been ai so what was the vibe towards ai on the floor and was there anything that you weren't expecting to hear around that kind of technology yeah i mean it was a big big topic of conversation but 
in a different way than I'm accustomed to it being a big topic of conversation at these events, because there was a lot of specificity in the way people were talking about AI. Um, I think the age of just saying we use AI or we have AI and expecting that to be a differentiator or turn heads is, is long over. Um, and everyone understands AI well enough in broad strokes that they know what questions to ask next. And mostly those are questions about data. You know, the thing that separates healthcare AI use cases from consumer AI use cases is the, the fact that, you know, the, the data sets are very siloed. They're, um, you know, they can be poor quality depending on what you're trying to use them for. There are privacy issues, access issues. So the, the AI winners in healthcare are going to be the data winners, the people who have good proprietary data or are doing the work on public data sets to make them useful. And that is kind of the golden ticket because the algorithms are, are table stakes. I mean, yes, still, uh, it, it's not... It's not nothing to build a, a model and an algorithm, and, and, and a lot of people are extracting value that way. But the thing about generative AI and, and chat GPT is every, you know, everybody's a coder, like, and, and that is going to keep getting better. So the data, I think, as a long-term differentiator, people are really worrying and thinking about the data. And the other thing about AI is just the multitude of use cases. You know, we're, we're well beyond the low-hanging fruit. Some of the low-hanging fruit did not turn out to be that easy to pick anyway. So there's still a lot of, um, you know, a lot of conversation about how best to leverage AI for something like um, drug discovery or target selection. But there's all of these places where AI can improve manual processes and, and see big returns. Um, so there's a huge opportunity to just innovate everything. A, a lot, I think, especially around clinical trials is, is one of the big areas where, where we see that. Um, even something as simple as having ChatGPT do the first pass on your protocol design or your um, or translating your informed consent into a, the language, the local language, if you're doing a trial in Japan. You know, things like that. People are saying operational things that, you know, you might not think about, but when you put them all together and you have a machine that can just do them, um, it, it really makes a difference. Even just something that scans your emails to make sure there are no glaring errors when you're sending things to patients or something like that. It makes such a big difference to the way that your operations run. The only caution is that ChatGPT's problems are magnified in healthcare. And so there is a lot of, you know, we really don't want to be hallucinating here. We don't want uh, to trust an AI to take us down a a very expensive drug development route and, and turn out to have been making something up. We don't want, you know, to end up communicating to patients and accidentally, you know, saying something we don't mean. So there, there's, in, in addition to kind of getting this good data, there's also some, some work being done to sort of see, what, you know, the bias and the hallucination problems. Can we correct those for healthcare or can we build human safeguards into the processes around the AI to make sure that those don't cause problems? I think we should probably clarify there that it is the AI that creates hallucinations and it's not the person who is using the AI who is having hallucinations. No, hallucination is just a, it's a term to art for the, the phenomenon of, of uh, ChatGPT and its, and its ilk making things up. The, the, these models very, are very confidently wrong and uh, that concerns a lot of people because we're going to come to rely on them very quickly. <laughs> 
especially when we talk about data, there is a there is the old adage that data and numbers don't lie. And when you know that we have things like hallucinations within AI programs, that is going to be a huge problem if you blindly trust the data that is being presented to you. So is that that's is true? That, is that something that you heard at all on the on the floor? No, I think everybody takes that very seriously. I should hope In so. a sense, there there is also a problem of like not enough trust, which uh, that's a misleading way to say it. But a lot of these things can't reach their full potential until the industry in general really trusts them, and especially regulators. So there's a lot of eyes on the FDA, and um, you know, and its its counterparts in in Europe and and in Asia Asian countries, um, you know, all around the world. To, to say, like, you know, we can do this with, with trials and with real-world evidence, but, like, no one's going to do it until they trust that the AI is going to accept those trial results the same way they would a, a randomized control trial. I, I, I should put in just a quick plug here, and, and there's a little more about this in my column, and, and maybe I'll write a full piece on it or do a full podcast on it later, but just had a fascinating um, conversation over lunch with the folks from Komodo Health and... Uh, and a guy, Tracy Main, who, who works with them, um, and he, he's, he's with uh, Slipstream IT. It was all about, like, synthetic controls. And, and the big takeaway was that, like, not only can we do certain trials with synthetic data, so, you know, instead of actually having a control group, pulling a, a control group from existing patient data. Um, but we're kind of going to have to start doing that because there is a growing problem with these post-market trials for accelerated approval drugs where nobody wants to be on a clinical trial for something that they could actually be prescribed because um, nobody wants a 50% chance of, of a life-saving drug when they could have a 100% chance of getting it. And it's really affecting the trials. I mean, they're, they're in the one sense, they're kind of functionally unblinded uh, because the effects of the drugs are so obvious that people know whether they're on them or not. And then and then when people find out they're not, they just leave the trial, which corrupts the data. So, there, you know, this is this is potentially, you know, it's, it's already a real problem, um, but it, it's only going to become a bigger problem because the FDA is pretty doubled down on accelerated approvals. So if they don't also figure out how to run the confirmatory studies, you know, in a robust way, then they really have a problem and, and there's not really another good option except for leveraging synthetic data. So that's a situation where, you know, the, the, the tools are there. I mean, it's pretty impressive what can be done with synthetic data and, and it's been going on for a few years, but the bottleneck is, you know, do we trust that the regulators trust the data? It's like these layers of trust. Yeah. Like a, like a parfait. Is that the Shrek quote? Like a parfait of trust, lots of layers, yeah. or an onion, and, and and I mean it's it's it makes sense when you think about it because it's really expensive to run a trial even with synthetic data, and um, you don't want to be the first one to do anything novel in a trial uh, because you know if the FDA turns out doesn't accept it, then you're really in trouble. Risk versus reward with innovation, really, isn't it? Yeah. But I mean, one thing that's been very interesting to me kind of in, in, in a broad sense as I've become more engrossed in this field is that there's like a second order problem of innovating the way we innovate, you know, like 
it's one thing to study an innovative drug using an R&D process that regulators are familiar with, because then you can kind of prove, yes, this works or no, this doesn't work. But when you're trying to innovate the R&D process at the same time, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to premiere a new digital biomarker for studying Alzheimer's. Well, now there's now there's noise because are we seeing the effect of the biomarker or are we seeing the effect of, you know, of the intervention? And so it's hard to get that stuff off the ground because you don't have a you don't you know, it's hard to get funding to just trial, you know, trials. And I think that's one thing that's held back, um, you know, hybrid and, and digitized clinical trials for a long time. Uh, is this this kind of first mover problem and this, you know, measuring the measuring problem. But there's a lot of people working really hard on all the pieces of that. And um, and so it's really, it's a matter of time. But given the speed that technology is advancing, um, you know, you, you finally get something um, accepted and, and you're kind of moving on to the next thing. So well, that's very encouraging. Um, so just moving back a little bit to JP Morgan, because I think we're we're starting to do the whole full podcast. We need to save something for another day. What, what presentations did you see that really caught your eye? Aside from uh, synthetic drug uh, arms over lunch and the topic of AI, uh, what else caught your eye? Yeah, um, well, I mean, I, I should just mention one specific example of AI. As, as I was able to go to a demo event for um, NVIDIA, uh, the chip maker, which has has launched a a platform, um, that basically it uses kind of Gen I interface for drug discovery, and it's pretty impressive how sort of easily you can be like, you know, tell me what these targets are, and now tell me which ones do this and do that, and and it you know leverages available data. Um, so that was pretty cool. Uh, they're they're pretty like well invested in the space and it was interesting to see their ceo kind of who's very much a tech guy um the extent to which he's really kind of gotten himself in the weeds on this stuff like really learning to understand it um but in terms outside of ai you know the innovations that people were talking about really were um a lot of talk about cell and gene therapy which is not surprising given we had the two big gene therapy approvals just about a month before the conference started the talk there is not not too different than than what it has been. It's just a matter of like a feeling that progress is being made. So the one of the big problems in in cell and gene now is that you know the the innovation is about to explode, the approvals are about to explode, and the business models and the infrastructure aren't necessarily there. Uh, the, these are completely different drugs than what we're used to. A lot of them are one time cures, so they have to be priced very differently, um, very expensively, but, but ultimately generating a value, you know, over the lifetime of the patient, um, they're, uh, they right now, um, when we are talking about, um, autologous cell therapies, which is a lot of them, um, they have to be, you know, you have to go to the patient, you have to take their cells out of their body, you have to do gene editing on them, and then you've got to put them back in. And that's a very, expertise intensive process (laughs) you know it's 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 anything but and so you know it's not just we need a supply chain for a drug it's we need you know to to stand up operations with trained people and specialized equipment that can do this all over the country and the world and that's you know that's a pretty 
tall order too. So, but, but I say, you know, so these are the problems, but it does feel like, you know, it does feel like there's progress being made. And, um, you know, the F Peter Marks at the FDA spent his whole talk talking about the ways that the FDA is going to try to be encouraging innovation in gene therapy and, and get more approvals. Um, I saw the CEO of Bluebird Bio, who's one of the companies that had a gene therapy approved last month. Um, and he was talking on stage about their, their pricing decisions and, and how they're really getting the payers to come on board by going at risk and offering an outcome-based model, which is, you know, which is value-based care, something we've been talking about for years and, and seen, you know, few enough real examples of. So, so there's a sense, you know, this might finally move the needle on that kind of risk sharing arrangement for, for pricing, because there's just no other way to do this with these life-changing therapies. Um, and then it's interesting uh, to hear you bring in regulators and payers. Cause if I remember back to, um, to Frontier's health, one of the key takeaways that we heard from people is that regulators and payers should be a big part of these Congresses where where you can work together. Was that something that you saw reflected at JP Morgan as well? The need to really increase those collaborations? Yeah. I mean, definitely people, I think pharma in general, and I mean, this is not exactly the same thing as, uh, as you're talking about, but I think it, there's a related mindset shift here where, you know, the IRA, the inflation reduction act in, in the United States really took pharma companies by surprise. Um, and, you know, it was kind of a wake up call that like, not that they were being adversarial with, with, uh, you know, governments and regulators before, but it really, you know, drove home how important it is to be working with governments and have a kind of productive collaborative relationship because you really don't want to get in a fight. And I mean, the FTC, um, you know, the federal trade commission that regulates mergers and acquisitions in the United States has sort of been signaling that it's going to be looking closely at, at pharma uh, mergers and those are the bread and butter of of the business of pharma so you know it's it's like bring those people to the table figure out what the concerns are figure out how we can work together with the fda i think industry's been much better at working with the fda for a long time but it's always a work in progress um it, <laughs> one thing i heard a few times is that the fda is is not a monolithic uh organization you know in some ways it's like it's it's more like a hydra. There, there's many different departments, and they don't necessarily have the same feelings about specific technologies and like how and to what extent they should be regulated. So it's it's important to kind of keep an eye on all the guidances that come out and and be as involved in the conversation as you can. And and um, I think that's really yeah. If people didn't know that before, they're kind of realizing it. It just it's just hit home lately, you know. We we have to we have to work with regulators, especially as we're coming through with with so many innovations. And you said that idea of of understanding and that there may not be certain processes in place for you to explore this innovative way of doing things. Working together, where you can actually help regulators to understand what you're trying to do, so that you don't come across what we've seen with AI in particular, where regulators are having to play catch up almost with the technology and the advancement of the technology. Yeah. And, and I mean, another thing the FDA has been doing is really good is, is they've been hiring a lot and they've been hiring from the industry. Um, so, you know, so they do have those experts on staff who know what they're talking about and understand the way the industry is thinking about things. 
Um, I wanted to say the other thing from a R and D perspective, um, and, and this will be in my column too, um, is is antibody drug conjugates. They never went away, obviously. Um, the hugely successful, you know, real success stories of the last few years at, at ASCO. But there's a lot of they're they're very very popular acquisition targets. They were last year. They look like they're going to be again this year. Um, Cineos Health did a dealmaker survey that showed that ADCs were the most, the technology that people, were, acquirers were the most excited about. Um, I saw a talk by Daichi Sanko's uh, CEO, where he talked about how the company has really completely restructured itself um, to focus on ADCs b- because they believe, you know, so strongly in the opportunity and how much more opportunity there is. So, Cell and gene, I think people get excited about because it is, you know, in some ways the new kid on the block and, uh, and it has, you know, these incredible, um, results for patients. I mean, curing things that we previously had sort of resigned ourselves to, to just treating for the rest of a patient's life. That's a huge, uh, paradigm shift. So it makes sense that people are excited about cell and gene, but ADCs are also, um, you know, hugely effective. I mean, they have effect sizes that sort of make people do a double take at these conferences like ASCO. And um, there's still there's still a lot of work that can be done there. And that and that's still a strong focus of the industry. So so a lot of talk about ABCs, a lot of, you know, excitement about that, like just because it's not as like hypey at this point as AI um, or Celagene, you know, it's still a huge kind of growth area with a lot of potential to to help a lot of patients. I think uh, in in one piece I read of yours, you called it the third act, and I think that that perfectly kind of describes it. Whereas uh, AI and cell and gene are maybe act one, act two, where it's very much the hype. We're in the we're in the end game. Well, not may, maybe not the end game, but but moving close to it when it comes to to ADCs, especially after the success of of drugs like um, Inertu. Yeah, originally I had written second act because, um, and I was I was riffing off something that um, Ken Keller, the the CEO of Daichi Sanko, said um, that you know we're about to. He said we're just getting to the end of the first chapter of ADCs. It just took us a hundred years to get through that chapter. Um, but I I I thought maybe it is the third because you know there, I mean who knows this is all very subjective, but um, you know the first being sort of like the discovery of this technology and and then a long period of time of trying to make it work without having a lot of like real successes and then the second being you know having an hair to and 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 seeing the big success um and then you know and th- that kind of initial excitement about that and then the third being like okay now let's buckle down and see how much work this can do almost like the first act is the idea the second act is the prototype and the third act is the the one you sell yeah, but it, but it is interesting to note that with antibodies, there was a long period of time between sort of the realization that this might work and like actually getting this to work. And so that's, you know, and then that's that's science for you. But that's science for you. I think that should be the new tagline for, for JP Morgan Health. Well, I mean, CRISPR is kind of, you know, the, the similar thing there where like you remember everyone was excited about CRISPR like five years ago and, and by everyone I mean like you know the lay people like they won the Nobel Prize and and you know there were big 
you know, Time Magazine articles about it, what it can do. And then, you know, we went back to the lab to actually work on doing it. And we just saw the first CRISPR-derived therapy approved in December. So, you know, these things do take time. And the, the hype cycles, I think, are different than in tech, where it's like, oh, here's this new thing. You can get it in August, you know. <laughs> and speaking of tech, one thing that I've, I did read from JP Morgan is that big tech was making quite a big impact. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about about that? Yes, uh, I mean yes and no. I, there were several big announcements. Um, Google, a couple of well, Alphabet spinouts made some big announcements. Um, yeah, so the Alphabet spinout, um, Isomorphic Labs signed um, some big deals with Eli Lilly and Novartis for for AI drug discovery. Nvidia, I mentioned, uh, they're working with Recursion and Amgen on on some of these. Uh, these platforms are also for drug discovery. And then Amazon, a little bit of a different kind of announcement, they announced that they're working with Omada Health, which is a long-term um, digital health, digital therapeutics company in the chronic disease management space. And that's pretty significant because Amazon's healthcare efforts have really been sort of a stepwise march. You know, now we're doing prescriptions, now we're going to add in telehealth for, you know, acute conditions. And and so if they're really getting into the chronic condition space, it's it's a pretty big shift for them. And then um, there was one more uh, Alphabet spin-up that had a, a smaller acquisition. So a lot of movement from big tech and not just like, oh, we're at a, a conference, so let's make an announcement movement, right? Like pretty significant investment. Um, and, and what I wrote in my column was that, you know, I, I worked for Moby Health News before I came to Pharma Forum, and, and I, I spent a long time covering sort of big techs forays into healthcare. And they, they have been, you know, mixed results, um, some real big failures. I, I mentioned Haven in the column, you know, Google Health. Theranos! Theranos! <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I think what, what tech has learned is that tech and healthcare, especially tech and pharma, are really, really different worlds. And trying to come in and say, you know, we're going to do this now um, and we're going to do it better than you did, like they maybe did to taxis or stores, is just not the approach that's going to work in healthcare. It's got to be, hey, we think we can help you do what you do better with our technology and our approach to innovation, but we need your expertise. So it's working with, instead of, you know, trying to trying to own these markets. Um, that's, and again, I mean, these are very broad strokes things. Certainly this, this has been understood for a long time by some people, but that's the shift. I think the large scale shift I'm seeing is like big tech has figured out that this is the way to make an impact is to really partner. I think I completely agree with that. Um, the biggest partnership I've seen is big tech coming in saying, hey, we understand data. And then pharma companies going, we understand how the regulatory system works. We understand that you're not going to be able to just create something and it can hit the ground running. There is a way of doing things that will work for us. So I think you're absolutely right. I've seen so many more partnerships rather than one or the other trying to um, innovate individually. Yeah, and it's 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 good to see. I mean, the other thing about big tech is is obviously the conference is in San Francisco, so there's going to be a little more. I don't want to say bias, but like they're right there, right? <laughs> they can come make an appearance. Okie dokie. Uh, 
I think we have we've run out of time for this podcast. We've done we've done half an hour now. Uh, are there any big takeaways that you would like to to emphasize from your time at JP Morgan? You know, it was it was a good show. Um, I did a whole lot of video interviews, and they're going to be trickling out over the next month and a half. Um, and I think what you're going to see in those is a lot more deep dives on, you know, particular companies and technologies. I spoke to mostly small biotechs, um, a lot of which are in one way or another in gene therapy. Um, you know, there are definitely other areas on the sort of edge of, you know, the the innovation bubble that, that I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about in years to come. You know, I think that microbiome is an area that has and very slowly creeping up from kind of novelty to, you know, hey, there's real gains to be made here. You know, it's it's been rocky road for for psychedelics, and I didn't hear much about them here, but but I think that's also something that might, you know, we might start to see. Um, we didn't talk at all about GLP ones. It might be worth diving into that for just a quick second. Go for it. You know, I didn't hear as much GPL one GLP one conversation as as I expected expected to, frankly, and that could have just been um, the meetings I happened to be in. There's a certain amount of of uh, luck there because just because it's such a huge conference. But um, what what I am hearing is, uh, you know, the pharma company heads that I heard interviewed, you know, when they were asked about GLP ones, if they if they weren't already in the space, the the answer is kind of like, yeah, this is a huge thing, you know, a huge transformational technology that nobody saw coming um but we're still not that interested in being the third you know me too here they they want to they want to see like how do we take it forward how can we have a version that's you know better than what's out there um and of course the companies that are already making these drugs are also they're hoping to to get ahead on that so formulation is a thing like the the possibilities for GLP-1 in a pill rather than an injection could make a big difference for how um, accessible it is. Uh, and then really the downstream effects on, you know, not just obesity, but everything cardiometabolic, you know, w- what's the safe and responsible and effective way to leverage this technology, you know, preventatively around heart disease, that's a big question. And then, and then the other thing is, is you know, there there are some kind of uh, worries about exactly how GLPs work in terms of like metabolically, you know, fat and muscle, and and um, and so there's there's some optimization that can maybe be done on their effectiveness in terms of of uh, in patients who maybe have less severe obesity. And I think that leads me quite well into our my last question for you today, which is apart from GLP-1s, was there anything else that you didn't see that you were expecting to or that you were slightly um, disappointed that you didn't see? Um, no, not disappointed. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I guess like it is it is I think I would, you know, die if I did more than three days of JP Morgan. But at the same time, like. At the end of three days, you don't feel like you've seen enough sometimes you because there are so many different 
really exciting things going on in pharma. And, you know, you'd like to be able to hear a little bit about all of them. Um, I, I would note, you know, there was a panel at one of the events I was at about women's health. And the moderator said that they do this panel every year. And normally, and it was towards the end of the day on Wednesday. Normally, there's almost nobody there in the room, and the room is really packed. And, you know, a lot of that panel was talking about some of the difficulties of getting funding in women's health and how sort of ridiculous they are. <laughs> but just the just the interest there was sort of encouraging that this is starting to be taken more seriously as a space. So that might be something I think we'll hopefully hear more about in the next few years and, and hopefully like a more a more frothy deal making environment will be good for that space. But at the same time, if the deal making is focused on these sort of late stage things, then I'm trying to think it's a, it's a really good question. I'll tell you one thing I was very happy to not hear more about was the IRA. Um, at, at JP Morgan 2023, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't walk into a room without hearing somebody lament the IRA and its effect on their business. And I, I don't mean to minimize that. I mean, I think, Pharma has some very real concerns about the way the legislation is going to affect their their pipelines, but um, the sky is falling stuff was was a lot, and it certainly seems that now that they've accepted that it's not going away, um, people are much more talking about like here's how we're going to deal with it, here's how we're going to move forward, and um, it, it's it's almost like there was a there was a concerted effort to talk about it last year um, because they were still kind of playing the the PR game, you know? <laughs> Lawsuit as press release. Like, let's really try to get the public on our side about how hard this is going to be for innovation. And and that, you know, we're, we're past that now. It, it's here. It's happening. We're going to try to minimize the effect and, you know, try to figure out how we can move forward and, and make drugs for patients. Which is the ultimate, it's, it's, it's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't mean to say that it's over and we're never going to hear anything else about the IRA. We, we certainly are. But I think the general attitude is is one of like, it's time to figure out where we go from here. So the conversation is changing more than the topic. Yeah. Yeah. OK, thank you so much for, for joining me today, Jonah. It's been great hearing about what you saw and heard on the floor at JP Morgan Week. Uh, if you want to hear more or read more about what Jonah heard again, saw, uh, you can read the live coverage that we had from the event, which you can find on the Pharma Forum website. Uh, he was, as Jonah has mentioned, there is also going to be an opinion piece that is coming out and potentially a roundup. Uh, and you will also be able to find some of our coverage in the upcoming Deep Dive magazine in February. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Yep. And a shout out to our news editor, uh, Phil Taylor, and our web editor, Nicole Raleigh, who really stayed on top of covering the uh, big news stories out of the show uh, remotely from Europe. Um, we, we also, you know, if you go to the news section on Farmer Forum, you can see all these acquisitions and, and tech announcements and things like that. Thank you, Eloise. Always a pleasure to, to sit down and talk pharma. Okay. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, 
who you can find and subscribe by searching for PharmaForum. And don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins and to follow us on Twitter at at PharmaForum. Thanks for listening.